You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the latter half of the 20th century, American wine finally began to come into its own on the global stage. It was no longer considered a social faux pas to be seen drinking California Chardonnay. Hastened by a global recession, consumption of European wine by Europeans dropped precipitously by nearly half in France and almost two-thirds in Italy. So what's a vineyard to do if they've produced more wine than the public is buying? Put it in the wine lake, of course. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're talking today about strategic reserves. It's a term you've probably heard, but maybe have a nebulous understanding of. A strategic reserve is the reserve of a commodity or items held back from normal use by governments, organizations, or businesses as part of a strategy to affect the price or to prepare for unexpected events. Your mind may go immediately to the 35 million barrels or so of crude oil the U.S. has in storage, But there are all kinds of strategic reserves, also called stockpiles, around the world. Today's episode is by no means an exhaustive list of strategic reserves. Basically, if there's an industry producing something, there's probably a stockpile of it. The rationing, depredation, and economic collapse that were part and parcel to World War II affected the lives of Europeans so profoundly that the European Economic Community, a precursor to the EU, began subsidizing farmers. Farmers never really rake in the big bucks, even though they are outstanding in their field. But they were no longer able to rely on it to support their families, especially on land pockmarked with pesky bomb craters and such. Underproduction was endemic to the 1950s due to both the effects of the war and two years of drought. The Common Agricultural Policy was created in 1962 to pay guaranteed artificially high prices to dairy farmers for surplus products. These products were then sold to the European public for even higher prices, causing a drop in sales. Non-EU dairies trying to get in on these high prices were kiboshed with heavy taxes. A certain portion of products were stockpiled to guard against crop failures, more natural disaster, or, you know, in case somebody got a wild hair across their butt and started World War III. In 1986 alone, the EU bought 1.23 million tons of leftover butter. That is 9,840,000,000 sticks of creamy, saturated fat goodness. While this may sound like a dairy lover's dream, the general public was not as enthusiastic when word got out of what was termed the Butter Mountain, 
nor were they keen to learn they had been paying inflated prices for their dairy goods. This program actually cost a lot of taxpayer money, almost 90% of the European Economic Community's entire budget. Even as recently as 2003, these payments are approximately half of the EU budget, even though farming is only 3% of the overall economy. It had taken into the 1990s for something to be done about that, however. Instead of paying farmers for their unwanted butter, the EEC switched to paying them to not produce it. To move away from paying farmers guaranteed minimum prices for surplus, the government shifted to paying farmers so they won't have to produce as much. While it absolutely sounds counterintuitive, it's actually not uncommon for governments to pay farmers to not be farmers. It's been done here in the States since the 1930s. Some of the prohibitively high import taxes were rescinded as well. In 2007, the butter surplus was liquidated, figuratively speaking. In 2009, however, the global recession did require some of the old policies to be reinstated. The EU claimed it was only a temporary measure that would result in a much smaller butter reserve than before, a butter hill rather than a mountain. A grass-fed knoll, if you will. I've got a million of them. This was no magic butter, of course. You get it? Like, magic bullet? Okay, I'll stop. Critics argued that farming subsidies in first world nations hurt developing countries whose farmers can't compete with the artificial prices. The 300,000 tons of butter the government bought cost taxpayers a whopping 280 million euro, about a third of a billion dollars, and public pressure quickly rose to get rid of it again. As of 2011, a portion of the butter had been donated to the Worldwide Food Aid for the Needy program. They don't have this down pat, though. I, I couldn't resist, I'm sorry. Changing medical views about fat are leading people to return to butter over vegetable oils or margarine at a rate that's now outpacing production. If you're able to secure butter for your pancakes, you're going to need some maple syrup, and this leads us to Canada, the Great White North, a land of polite people, ice hockey, and unkillable geeses. What a pleasant and wholesome thing maple syrup is, drizzled on pancakes or waffles on a sunny Sunday morning. It lands strangely on the brain to learn that there is a global strategic maple syrup reserve, and stranger still to know that somebody stole it. The Canadian maple syrup industry produces approximately 80% of the world's pure maple syrup and is the leading global producer of maple products. The province of Quebec alone has almost 8,000 farms, fulfilling 72% of the world's sticky sweet needs. Maple syrup is harvested from the sap of sugar maple trees. Shocking, I know. But the process is more fickle than your average crop. It takes 40 units of sap to get one unit of syrup through a long and labor-intensive process called sugaring off. Maple trees require nights below freezing with days that are in the low 30s but above freezing to relinquish their sap in useful quantities. If the nights are too warm or the days are too cold, 
production levels can vary wildly. That isn't good news if you're trying to maintain a large-scale industry. Corporate buyers depend on a consistent supply. Since 2000, the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers has been squirreling away barrels of surplus syrup in rich times in preparation for poor harvests. The Federation's warehouses have a capacity of 10 million kilos, or 22 million pounds of syrup, about 2 million gallons. Each barrel weighs 620 pounds and commands a price of $1,650, about 20 times the cost of crude oil. And speaking of oil, some of the producers claim the Federation runs their operation like OPEC. Those producers who don't cooperate with their quota system, those with the temerity to find their own buyers, are dealt with harshly. Small producer Angela Greener said in an interview that she would face criminal charges if she didn't stop selling to a private broker after the courts ordered her to hand her syrup over. She had three choices, give the Federation her syrup crop, face jail time, or close down her business. The Federation's goal by taking our maple syrup is that by taking our income, we can't pay our lawyers. If one year we make 45 barrels and the next year is a very good year and we make 60, we want to get paid for the 60, she says. Once a producer fills the quota, the surplus, no matter how large, is retained until it is sold. That lag time can run into years. According to Grainier, a neighboring producer is owed almost 100,000 Canadian dollars in unsold syrup. A small Quebec producer described what happened to his family business. The agent who came here to seize our syrup said, if you were growing pot, we wouldn't be giving you as much trouble. In 2012, an accountant went to inventory the barrels in the warehouse in Saint-Louis-de-Blanford and was nearly badly hurt when the barrel he was standing on toppled over. It didn't hold his weight steady because it was empty. So were a number of barrels around it. And around them, barrels full of plain water. Because of the sheer volume of syrup in the warehouse, it would take two months for them to even determine how much was missing. About 60% of the reserve worth about $18 million at the time, had been stolen. The thieves had rented space in the same warehouse, and when the security guards were out of sight, siphoned syrup from the barrels over the course of 11 months. A multi-agency search began. Hundreds of people were questioned, and dozens of search warrants issued. It took a year for the 26 people believed to be involved in the robbery to be arrested. The mastermind, Richard Villiers, received an eight-year prison sentence, though that could be increased to 14 if he's unable to make restitution in the amount of $9.4 million. Villiers was found guilty of theft, fraud, and trafficking stolen goods. His father, Raymond, and a syrup reseller, Etienne St. Pierre, were also found guilty. And speaking of Canada, 
I am 100% serious about a virtual watch party for the Letterkenny Season 10 premiere. And yeah, I don't care that this is going to go out and be sitting on the internet forever and be totally irrelevant. If you want to do that, hit me up on the social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, and I'm on TikTok now, at Moxie Labouche. And to quote Letterkenny in making a clunky segue, what's a Mennonite's favorite kind of raisin? Barn raisin. Yes, Virginia, there is a National Raisin Reserve. Yep, raisins, little wrinkly former grapes that people find so polarizing. While most stockpiles were created to protect against shortage, the National Raisin Reserve came to be for the opposite reason. We were just up to our epaulets in raisins, apparently. During World War II, both the government and civilians bought raisins en masse to send to soldiers overseas as a sweet, shelf-stable taste of home. Increased demand led to increased production, and then the war ended, and the care packages were no longer needed, and raisins flooded the market. In 1949, Marketing Order 989 was passed, which created the Reserve and the Raisin Administrative Committee to oversee it under the supervision of the USDA. The committee was empowered to take a varying percentage of American raisin farmers' produce, sometimes as much as half, in an effort to create a raisin shortage and artificially drive up the market price. The reserved raisins don't go to waste. Much of it was used in school lunches, given to livestock, or sold on to other countries. If the raisins were sold, the profit was supposed to be shared with the farmers, but those monies could easily be eaten up by operating costs, leaving nothing for the people who actually grew the damn things. This program stayed in place, business as usual, for 53 years, until 2002. That's when farmer Marvin Horn decided he would rather sell the product he had grown and processed instead of giving it away to the government. The government took exception to this idea. Private detectives were dispatched to put his farm under surveillance, and trucks were sent to collect the raisins. When Horn refused to let the trucks on his property, he was slapped with a bill for $680,000, the value of the raisins plus a penalty. Not one to roll over that easily, Horn sued the government, claiming the forced forfeiture of his crop was unconstitutional. For years, the case was volleyed from one court to another. Eventually, it appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court, not once, but twice. The first time was to settle the issue of jurisdiction. The second was the core issue. Was the seizure of raisins a violation of the Fifth Amendment, which prohibits the government taking personal property without just compensation? In 2015, 13 years after Horn put his foot down the first time, the court ruled 8 to 1 in favor of Horn. For seizures to continue, compensation would have to be paid. Because yes, the confiscation of a portion of a farmer's crops without market price compensation was unconstitutional. So what's happening with the Raisin Reserve these days? The Agricultural Department could abolish it, but they've only really hit pause on using it, saying, due to a recent United States Supreme Court decision, the volume control provisions are currently suspended, being reviewed, and will be amended. 
At least that means that in the meantime, no more raisins should be put into the reserve and farmers are free to sell what's theirs. Bonus fact, golden raisins aren't dried white grapes. Both regular and golden raisins are made from the same kind of grape with slightly different processing. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Airwave Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. You remember after, like, the third time Futurama got cancelled, they did a quartet of movies that alternated in quality like Star Trek films. One, Into the Wild Green Yonder, featured a species called the Encyclopod, who preserved the DNA of all endangered species. It's not news that animal species are disappearing at an increasing rate, with a quarter of all known mammal and a tenth of all bird species facing possible extinction within the next generation. Global biodiversity is declining at an overwhelming speed. With each species that disappears, vast amounts of information about their biology, ecology, and evolutionary history are irreplaceably lost. In 2004, three British organizations decided to join forces to combat the issue. The Natural History Museum, the Zoological Society of London, and Nottingham University became, kind of like highly educated planeteers, the Frozen Ark Project. To do this, they gathered and preserved DNA and living tissue samples from all the endangered species they could get their hands on, literally, so that future generations can study the genetic material far into the future. No, not like Jurassic Park. I think it's been established that that's a bad idea. So far, the Frozen Ark has nearly a thousand samples stored at the University of Nottingham and participating consortium member sites in the U.S., Germany, Australia, 
India, South Africa, Norway, and many more. DNA donation comes from museums, university laboratories, and zoos. Their mission has four components. To coordinate global efforts in animal biobanking. To share expertise. To help organizations and governments set up biobanks in their own countries and to provide the physical and informatic infrastructure that allows conservationists and researchers to search for, locate, and use this material whenever possible, without having to resample wild populations. The Frozen Ark Project was founded in 2004 by Professor Brian Clark, a geneticist at the University of Nottingham, his wife, Dr. Anne Clark, an immunologist with experience in reproductive biology, and their friend, Dame Anne McLaren, a leading figure in developmental biology. Starting in the 1960s, Clark carried out comprehensive studies on land snails of the genus Partula, which are endemic to the volcanic islands of French Polynesia. Almost all Partula species disappeared within just 15 years. Because of a governmental biological control plan that went horribly wrong. In the late 1960s, the giant African land snail, a mollusk the size of a puppy, was introduced to the islands as a delicacy, and you're welcome to it, but soon turned into a serious agricultural pest because, as seems to happen 100% of the time we think this is a good idea, the giant snail had, say it with me, no natural predators. To control the African land snails, the carnivorous Florida rosy wolf snail was introduced in the 70s, but it annihilated the native snails instead. As a last resort, Clark's team managed to collect living specimens of the remaining 12 Partula species and brought them back to Britain. Tissue samples were frozen to preserve their DNA and an international captive breeding program was established. Currently, there are Partula species, including some that later became extinct in the wild, in a dozen zoos, and there have been a few promising reintroductions. The extinction story of the Partula snails resonated with the Clarks, who realized that systematic collection and preservation of tissue, DNA, and viable cells of endangered species should be standard practice, ultimately inspiring the birth of the Frozen Ark. The Frozen Ark project operates as a federated model, building partnerships with organizations worldwide that share the same vision and goals. The Frozen Ark Consortium has grown steadily since the project's launch, with new national and international organizations joining every year. There are now 27 partners distributed across five continents. Biological samples like tissue or blood from animals in zoos and aquaria can be taken from live animals during routine veterinary work or from dead animals. Bonus fact, and more of a nitpick really, if you want to be a pedant, and I always do, the post-mortem examination of an animal is not an autopsy, it is a necropsy. Autopsy, starting with auto, means examining the self. The biobanks can provide a safe storage for many types of biological material, particularly the highly valuable germ cells, aka sperm and eggs. 
Their work isn't merely theoretical for some distant day in the future. One success story of the Frozen Ark, which illustrates the benefits of combining cryobanked material, effective management, and a captive breeding program, is the alarmingly adorable black-footed ferret, which you can see right now on the Vodacast app. I'm still getting the hang of it, but Vodacast is an amazing app for content creators like myself who always have more to share, particularly since I'm working in an audio medium, I want to be able to share visual stuff. Get the podcast player that lets you get the whole picture. Available for Apple and Android, Vodacast, V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. The black-footed ferret was listed as extinct in the wild in 1996, but has since been reintroduced back into its habitat and is now gradually recovering. More recently, Researchers were able to improve the genetic diversity of the wild population by using 20-year-old cryopreserved sperm and artificial insemination. The genetics of plants must also be preserved, and there are many organizations around the world who have taken up the banner of seed preservation, over 2,000 in fact. Most of us have heard of the seed vault at Svalbard, the cool-looking tower sticking out of a Norwegian mountain where the permafrost ensures the seeds are preserved without need for electricity. But that's not the seed vault I want to talk about today. And fair warning, this one's going to get heavy. But it's one of those stories I find endlessly fascinating and, in its own strange way, kind of uplifting. In September 1941, German forces began to push into Leningrad, before and since called St. Petersburg. They laid siege to the city, choking off supplies of food and other necessities to two million residents. The siege of Leningrad didn't last a month or two or even six. The siege lasted nearly 900 days. Among the two million Soviet citizens struggling to survive were a group of scientists ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for the good of mankind. While they did, their leader, Nikolai Vavilov, Russian geneticist and plant geographer, lay dying in a Soviet prison a thousand miles away. Vavilov had traveled the world on what he called a mission for all humanity. He led 115 expeditions to 64 countries to collect seeds from agricultural plants and their wild ancestors. Based on his notes, modern biologists following in Vavilov's footsteps are able to document changes in the cultural and physical landscapes and the crop patterns in these places. To study the global food ecosystem, he conducted experiments in genetics to improve productivity for farmers. He was one of the first scientists to really listen to farmers, traditional farmers, peasant farmers around the world, and why they felt seed diversity was important in their fields. Says Gary Paul Nabon, ethnobiologist and author of Where Our Food Comes From. He continues, All of our notions about biological diversity and needing diversity of food on our plate to keep us healthy sprung from his work 80 years ago. His hope was that one day, science could work with agriculture to increase each farm's productivity and to create plants that would grow in any environment 
to bring an end to hunger. As Russia fought its way through anarchy, revolutions, and most importantly to Vavilov, famines, he went about storing seeds at the Institute of Plant Industry, also known as the Pavlovsk Experimental Station. The scientists there collected thousands of varieties of fruits, vegetables, grains, and tubers. Unlike Svalbard or Kew Garden in the UK, the seeds at Pavlovsk weren't just stored as seeds, but some were perpetuated as plants in a field. This is because some varieties do not breed true to seed. You can't store the seeds to get that same plant in the future. There was one obstacle in Vavilov's way. Well, two really, but one a much greater threat than the other. That being Joseph Stalin. The other was Stalin's favorite scientist, Trofim Lysenko. Lysenko was a dangerously misinformed scientist. Rather than survival of the fittest, where the genes that help an organism survive long enough to reproduce are the ones that will be passed on, Lysenko believed that organisms could inherit traits the parents acquired during their lifetime. Instead of believing that the giraffe with the longest neck was able to reach the most food and live to have babies, he believed the giraffe stretched its neck up and its baby would have a longer neck because of that. He also believed that if you grafted a branch of a desirable tree onto a less desirable tree, the base tree would improve. Trees do not work that way. His theories about seeds and flowers were equally backward. At best, it was garbage science. At worst, well, we don't need to speculate on that. We saw it happen. Crops failed under his now-mandatory systems on the new collectivized farms, which themselves reduced productivity. Lysenko's policies brought on a major famine, but he was still in Stalin's favor, and in the Soviet Union, that was all that mattered. In August 1948, the teaching of and research into classical Mendelian genetics, the P-based genetics we learn about in middle school, were outlawed. This disastrous government interference in the face of widely accepted science and its outcomes are called the Lysenko effect. But there was no way Stalin's favorite scientist was going to take the fall for the famine, so Stalin singled out Vavilov, who had been openly critical of Lysenko. He claimed Vavilov was responsible for the famines because his process of carefully selecting the best specimens of plants took too long to produce results. Vavilov was collecting seeds near Russia's border when he was arrested and subjected to 1,700 hours of savage interrogation. World War II was in full swing, and it was impossible for his family to find out what had happened to him. Vavilov, who spent his life trying to end famine, would starve to death in the gulag. But back in Leningrad, some scientists from the Institute of Plant Industry were able to get the bulk of the tuber collection and themselves to another location within the city. A dozen of Vavilov's scientists stayed behind to safeguard the rest of the seed collection. At first, it seemed as though they'd only have to contend with marauding enemy troops breaching the city, 
seeking to steal the seeds or simply destroy the building. The Red Army pushed the Germans back as long as they could. Nothing moved in or out of the city. Leningrad must die of starvation, Hitler declared in a speech in Munich on November 8, 1941. As the siege dragged on, the scientists then had to contend with protecting the seeds from their own countrymen. Food was rationed, and once it ran out, people ate anything they could to survive. Vermin, dogs, leather, sawdust, and as so often happens in such dark hours, some ate the dead. The scientists barricaded themselves inside the Institute with hundreds of thousands of seeds, a quarter of which were edible just as they were, along with grains and rice. But they did not eat them. They took turns guarding the storeroom in shifts, even as they grew weaker from hunger, even as they heard the Germans looting and destroying in the streets. The only thing that mattered to them was guarding the collection, safeguarding both the botanical past and the future for mankind and the work of their fallen Vavilov. One by one, the scientists began to die of starvation. One man died at his desk. Another died surrounded by bags of rice. In the end, nine of the 12 scientists did not live to see the end of the siege. But not a single groat, grain, seed, or tuber was eaten. According to Navon, one of them said it was hard to wake up. It was hard to get on your feet and put your clothes on in the morning. But no, it was not hard to protect the seeds once you had your wits about you. Saving those seeds for future generations and helping the world recover after war was more important than a single person's comfort. Unlike many of the 85 million deaths in World War II, those nine scientists' lives were not wasted. Today, many of the crops that we eat came from cross-breeding with varieties the scientists saved. As much as 80% of all the pre-collapsed Soviet Union's fields were sown with varieties that originated in Vavilov's collection. It's a sad tale, I know, but it's also an amazing one that so few people hear. And that's odd when you consider the thousands of hours of World War II documentaries that are out there. Maybe if History Channel was a little more history and a little less alien conspiracy. The world nearly lost Vavilov's collection a second time, though. In 2010, the land it sits on was being sold to a developer who planned to build private homes on the site. The collection can't just be packed up and moved. There are all sorts of complex legal and technical issues, including quarantines. The public called for the site to be preserved, and in 2012, the Russian government took formal action to prevent the land from being conveyed to private buyers. And as far as I can find, it stands safely still. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Much to my lasting disappointment, the Wine Lake was not a physical lake of wine, like Willy Wonka's Chocolate River for the Live Laugh Love set. 
In addition to subsidies equivalent to $1.7 billion per year, the EU purchased the vineyard's lower-quality grapes for what it called crisis distillation, turning the grapes into industrial alcohol and biofuels rather than products for drinking. This unfortunately encouraged some growers to produce more of the inferior grapes. So in 2008, the government just paid the growers to dig up the vines and abandon the fields of surplus grapes. In 2015, all previously enacted programs were phased out, meaning wineries once again would be responsible for their own excesses. Remember, you can always find the script for the show and source links at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.